This week on the Janice Adams Show, we're taking a path through history to Rochester, New York, revisiting the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass, a man for his time with a message for ours. Mr. President, fellow citizens, could I reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of stern rebuke. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Self-emancipated slave, publisher, underground railroad conductor, women's rights champion, Frederick Douglass, coming up. First, the news. The year is 1845, the day Monday, April 28th. The place, Lynn, Massachusetts. Frederick Augustus Bailey, a young man, has just finished writing a narrative of his life. Enslaved on a succession of plantations, deemed under scurrilous law, a slave for life, he had, quote, stolen himself, escaped the bonds of American slaveocracy in the South, for the free states of the North. For us today, listening to the story of his enslavement from birth, we celebrate his rebirth as a free man, his retaking of his life, his remaking of himself as Frederick Douglass, publisher, orator, statesman, anti-slavery crusader, women's rights champion. Now, at the bicentennial of his birth, we are living in a time when the American government is once again taking America back to an unacceptable time. We watch horrified as the administration renormalizes the spectacle of putting people of color into shackles, of seizing children from their parents, of casting them in pens, of destroying the lives of far too many to appease and stoke the hatreds and grudges of a few. In this America, Douglas's story is no mere history. It's a matter of urgency. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we revisit the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass, a man of his times with a message for ours. Good afternoon, friends, fellow citizens. He who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has stronger nerves than I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared uh, as a speaker before an assembly with greater distrust of my abilities than I do this day. The task before me is one which requires much preparation and previous thought for its proper performance. Should I seem at ease, my appearance would much misrepresent me. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between the plantation and this platform is considerable. The difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. That I am here today is to me a matter of astonishment as well as of gratitude. With little experience and much less learning, I have been able to throw my thoughts together, trusting to your patient and generous indulgence. Within the time allotted, I will proceed to lay them before you. I was born in Tuckahoe, about 20 miles from Eastern, in Talbot County, Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age or date of birth. By far the largest part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. They seldom come nearer to saying than around planting time or harvest time or fall time or springtime. A want of information concerning my age was a source of unhappiness even to me when I was a child. 
The white children always knew their ages and celebrated their birthdays. I could not tell why I should not be allowed the same privilege. However, all such inquiries on the part of a slave were deemed improper or impertinent, evidence of a restless spirit. The nearest estimate I came to was around February 14th. 1818. I finally came to this supposition from once hearing my master say about me, rather indifferently, uh, that one, uh, he was born a few weeks into the new year, about six or seven years ago. My mother was named Harriet Bailey. She was the daughter of Isaac and Betsy Bailey, both colored and of a quite dark complexion. She and I were separated before I knew her as my mother. It is a custom very common among slaveholders to part children from their mothers before the child has reached its 12th month. Its mother is separated from it, hired out on some farm a considerable distance off, and the child is placed under the care of any woman too old for farm labor. This inevitably hinders the development of the child's affection toward its mother blunts and destroys the natural affection of the mother for the child. I never saw my mother more than four or five times in my entire life. Each of these times was very short in duration at night. She lived about 12 miles away, making her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work in the field. She would come, lie down with me, and get me to sleep. But long before I waked, she was gone. She was a field hand, and uh, whipping is the penalty for not being in the field at sunrise. I do not recollect ever seeing my mother by the light of day. Death soon ended what little time we could have had while she lived, but with it all her hardships, suffering, and illness. I was about seven years old, but was never allowed to be present during her illness, at her death, or her burial. Fact is, she was gone long before I knew anything about any of that. By all I ever heard speak of my parentage, my father was a white man. The opinion was also whispered that my master was my father, but of the correctness of this opinion, I know nothing. True or false, the fact remains in all its glaring odiousness, slaveholders have, by law, established that children of slave women shall all follow the conditions of their mothers. This is done, obviously, to administer to their own lusts and make gratification of their wicked desires profitable as well as pleasurable. By this cunning arrangement, the slaveholder sustains to his slaves the double relation of master and father. It is worthy of remark that such slaves invariably suffer greater hardships and have more to contend with than others. They are, in the first place, a constant offense to their mistress. She is ever disposed to find fault with them. They can seldom do anything to please her. She is never better pleased than when she sees them under the lash, especially when she suspects her husband of showing to his mulatto children favors which he withholds from his other slaves. The master is frequently compelled to sell this class of his slaves out of deference to the feelings of his wife. Cruel as it may be for a man to sell his own children to human fleshmongers, it is often the dictate of humanity for him to do so. Unless he does this, he must not only whip them himself, but he must stand by and see others like himself, perhaps his own son, whip his brother or his sister and ply the gory lash to his or her naked back. If he utter one word of disapproval, it is set down to his parental partiality, 
making an already bad matter even worse for himself and worse for the slave whom he would protect and defend. I remember I was probably between seven and eight years old when one master, uh, Captain Anthony, had determined to let me go to Baltimore to live with a Mr. Hugh Auld, brother to his son-in-law. I had received this information about three days before my departure, and I spent most of those three days in the creek, washing off the plantation scurf, preparing for my departure. After several hours' journey, we arrived at Baltimore early one Sunday morning, and I was conducted to my new home on uh, Aliciana Street. Mr. and Mrs. Auld both met me at the door with their little son, Thomas. And uh, here I saw what I had never seen before, white faces beaming with the most kindly emotions. Little Thomas was told, here is your Freddy. And thus, I entered upon the duties of my new home with the most cheerful prospects ahead. Very soon after my arrival, Mrs. Auld very simply, naturally, and kindly commenced to teach me the ABCs. After I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. However, just at this point of my progress, Master Hugh found out what was going on and at once forbade her to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. To use his own words, if you give a nigger an inch, he'll take an L. He should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he's told. Learning will spoil the best nigger in the world if you teach him to read while there'll be no keeping him. It'll forever unfit him to be a slave. He'll become unmanageable, of no value to me. It'll do him no good but a great deal of harm. Make him discontented and unhappy. These words sank deep into my soul stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering, but called into existence an entirely new train of thought. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty. To wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. It was just what I needed, just what I wanted. And I got it at a time when I least expected it. Whilst I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, I was gladdened by the invaluable instruction which by the merest accident I had gained from my master. I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose, at whatever cost of trouble, to learn to read. The very decided manner with which he spoke and strove to impress his wife with the evil consequences of giving me instruction served to convince me that he was deeply, deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with utmost confidence on the results which he said would flow from teaching me to read. Suddenly, what he most dreaded, I most desired. That which to him was a great evil was to me a great good, one to be diligently sought. And the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with desire and determination. Yes, in learning to read, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress. I can now acknowledge the benefit of both. I lived in Master Hugh's family about seven years during which time I succeeded to learn how to read and write. 
and accomplishing this, I was compelled to resort to various stratagems since my mistress had, in compliance with the advice and direction of her husband, not only ceased to instruct me, but had set her face against my being instructed by anyone else. A pious, warm, and tender-hearted woman, slavery soon proved the ability to divest her of these heavenly qualities. Under its influence, her tender heart became stone, and the lamb-like disposition gave way to one of tiger-like fierceness. Now commencing to practice her husband's precepts, she finally became even more violent in her opposition than her husband himself. I've had her rush at me with a face made all up of fury and snatch from me a newspaper in a manner that fully revealed her apprehension. She became convinced that education and slavery were incompatible with each other and that herein lies some danger. From this time, I was most narrowly watched. If I were in a separate room any considerable length of time, I was sure to be suspected of having a book and was at once called to give an account of myself. All this, however, was too late. The first step had been taken. Mistress Auld, in teaching me the alphabet, had given me the inch. And no precaution could now prevent me from taking the L. More from Frederick Douglass after the break. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're following the trail of history to the intersection of current events, revisiting the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass. Here he is to tell us how he turned a rudimentary knowledge of the alphabet into a lifetime of human rights advocacy. The plan which I adopted, and the one by which I was most successful, was that of making friends of all the little white boys whom I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers, with their kindly aid obtained at different times, in different ways, and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. At times, I even used to talk with them about this matter of slavery. I would sometimes say to them, I wish I could be as free as you when you get to be 21. But I am a slave for life. Have not I as good a right to be free as you have? These words surely troubled them. They would express for me the liveliest sympathy and console me with the hope that someday something would occur by which I might be free. At about age 12, I got hold of a book called The Columbian Orator. Among such other interesting matter, I found in it a dialogue between a master and his slave. Now, the slave was represented as having run away from his master three times. The dialogue represented the conversation which took place between them when the slave was retaken the third time. Now, in this dialogue, the whole argument in behalf of slavery was brought forward by the master, all of which was disposed of by the slave. The slave was made to say some very impressive things in reply to his master, things which had the unexpected effect of the voluntary emancipation of the slave on the part of the master. In the same book, I met with mighty speeches on behalf of emancipation. I read them over and over and over again with unabated interest. They gave light to thoughts of my own soul which had frequently flashed through my mind but died away for want of utterance. The morale which I gained from this dialogue was the power of truth over conscience, a bold denunciation of slavery, and a powerful vindication of human rights. The more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest my enslavers. I could regard them in no other light than a band of horrible, successful thieves who had gone to Africa and stolen us from our homes. I loathed them as being the meanest as well as the most wicked of men. 
as I read and contemplated the subject, behold, the very discontentment which Master Hugh had predicted would follow my learning to read had now come to torment and sting my soul to unutterable anguish. As I writhed under it, I would at times feel that learning to read had been a curse rather than a blessing. It had given me a view of my wretched condition without remedy. A horrible pit with no ladder upon which to climb out. In moments of agony, I envied my fellow slaves for their ignorance. Anything, anything, no matter what, to get rid of thinking. It was pressed upon me by every object within sight or hearing, animate or inanimate. It was heard in every sound, seen in everything. I felt nothing without feeling it. It looked from every star, smiled in every calm, breathed in every wind, and moved in every storm. Freedom, freedom now appeared to disappear forever. I found myself regretting my own existence, wishing myself dead, and but for hope of being free, I have no doubt that I should have killed myself or done something for which I should have been killed. While in this state of mind, I was eager to hear anyone speak of slavery, anyone. I was a ready listener. Soon I began hearing something about the abolitionists. It was some time before I found what the word meant. It was always used in such connections as to make it an interesting word to me. If a slave ran away and succeeded in getting clear, or if a slave killed his master, set fire to a barn, or did anything very wrong in the mind of a slaveholder, it was spoken of as the fruit of abolition. Hearing the word in this connection very often, I set about learning all that it stood for. After a patient waiting, I got one of our city papers containing an account of the number of petitions from the North praying for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and of the slave trade between the states. From this time, I understood the words abolition and abolitionist and always drew near when the words were spoken expecting to hear something of importance to myself and my fellow slaves. Now, one day I went down to the wharf, and seeing two Irishmen unloading a scow of stone, I, I went uninvited and helped them. Now, when finished, one of them came to me and said, Are you a slave for life? I told him that I was. The good Irishman seemed to be deeply affected by that statement. He said to the other that it was a pity that so fine a fellow such as myself should be a slave for life. They both advised me to run away to the north, that I should find freedom and friends there, and that I should be free. I pretended not to be interested in what they said, for I feared they might be treacherous. White men have been known to encourage slaves to escape and then to get the reward, catch them and return them to their masters. Now, I was afraid that these seemingly good men might use me so, but I nevertheless remembered their advice. And from that time, I looked forward to escape. Now, after several years, my master and my mistress both died within a very short time of each other. And all their property, slaves included, was in the hands of strangers, strangers who'd had nothing to do with having accumulated their wealth. Not a slave was left free from the youngest to the oldest. If any one thing served to deepen my conviction of the infernal character of slavery and to fill me with even further unutterable loathing of slaveholders, 
It was their base ingratitude to my poor grandmother. All knew her as a most kindly woman who had served my old master faithfully from youth to old age. She had literally been the source of all his wealth, having populated his entire plantation with slaves. She had become a great-grandmother in his service, had rocked him in infancy, attended him in childhood, nursed him in sickness, served him through life, and at his death, wiped from his icy brow the cold death sweat, closing his eyes forever. Now, she was nevertheless left a slave, a slave for life, a slave now in the hands of strangers. In their hands, she saw her children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, divided like so many sheep, without being gratified with the small privilege of a single word as to their destiny. And to cap the climax of the slaveholder's base ingratitude and fiendish barbarity, my grandmother now having outlived my old master and all his children, her present owners decided she was of little value. They took her to the woods, built her a little mud hut with a chimney, virtually turning her out to die, dealer, a Mr. Covey. The leading trait in his character was simple meanness. Oh, was he mean? He found me unsuitable to his purposes, that my city life had pretty much had a very pernicious effect upon me. He said that it had almost ruined me for every good purpose and fitted me for everything that was bad. Oh, he resolved to put me out, as he said, to be broken. Now, you have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. Now, on one occasion, very early in the morning of one of the coldest days in the month of January, he sent me to get a load of wood. He gave me a team of unbroken oxen. He tied one end of the large rope around the horns in the in-hand ox, gave me the other end of it, and told me if the oxen started to run that I must hold tight upon the rope. Now, I had never driven oxen before, and of course I was very awkward. I, however, succeeded in getting to the edge of the woods with little difficulty when suddenly the oxen took fright and, and started full tilt to run carrying the cart against trees and over stumps and over rocks in the most frightful manner, dragging me along with it on the ground. Now, I expected every moment that my brains would be dashed out against the rocks and stones. After running thus for a considerable distance, they finally upset the cart, smashing it with great force against a tree and threw themselves into a dense thicket. How I escaped death, I, I know not. There I was, entirely alone, entangled among the trees with no one to help me. Now, after a long spell of effort, I succeeded in getting to my feet. My cart uprighted, and my oxen disentangled, and again yoked to the cart. Now, I've now proceeded with my team to the place where I had, the day before, been chopping wood, and loaded my cart heavily, thinking, now in this way, it would tame the oxen. Then I headed home, getting out of the wood safely. Now, feeling out of danger, I stopped my oxen to open the wood's gate. But just as I did so, the oxen again started, rushed through the gate, catching it between the wheel and the body of the cart, tearing it to pieces, and coming within a few inches of crushing me against the gate post. Thus, twice, in one short day, I escaped death by the merest chance. On my return, I told Mr. Covey what had happened and how. He ordered me to return to the woods again immediately. I did so, and he followed on after me. And just as I got into the woods, he came up and told me to stop 
my cart, that he would teach me how to trifle away my time and break gates and destroy carts. He then went to a large gum tree and with his axe cut three very large switches. After trimming them up neatly with his pocket knife, he ordered me to take off my clothes. I made him no answer, but stood with my clothes on. He repeated his order, screaming profanities and curses. I still made him no answer, nor did I move to strip myself. Upon this, he rushed at me with the fierceness of a tiger, threw me to the ground, tore off my clothes, wrestled me, and started lashing me until he had worn out all three switches, cutting me so savagely as to leave the marks visible for a very long time. Now, this whipping was the first of a number just like it. I was merely 15 years of age, and within nine months, every week, he had given me a severe whipping. Work, work, work was scarcely more than the order of the day than of the night. The longest days were too short for him, and the shortest nights too long. On one particular morning, he entered the stable with a long rope just as I was coming down from the loft. He caught hold of my legs and was instantly about tying me Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased. But at this moment, from whence came the spirit, I don't know. I resolved to fight. I seized Covey by the throat. And as I did so, I rose to my feet, my hands around his neck. He held on to me with his feet dangling, and I to him. My resistance was so entirely unexpected that Covey, he was taken all aback. He trembled like a leaf. This gave me assurance, and I held him uneasy, causing the blood to run where I touched him with my fingers. Mr. Covey soon managed to call out for help. Mr. Hughes came and attempted to tie my hands. While he was in the act of doing so, I watched my chance and gave him a heavy kick under the ribs. This kick had the effect not, of not only weakening Hughes, but of weakening Covey also. I fought and I fought. When he saw Hughes bending over with pain, his courage quailed. Gasping for breath, he asked me if I meant to persist in my resistance. I told him I most certainly would come what might, that I was determined to be used as a brute no longer. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he wouldn't have whipped me so much. The truth was that he had not whipped me at all. Mr. Covey never laid the weight of his finger upon me again. Though I was somewhat unmanageable when I first went there, strangely enough, Mr. Covey had inevitably succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, spirit. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me. And in spite of all my resistance, I was now a man transformed into a brute. At times I would rise a flash of energetic freedom would dart through my soul accompanied with a faint beam of hope. A faint beam that flickered for a moment and then vanished. In the deep stillness of a summer's Sabbath, I often stood all alone upon the lofty banks of the noble Chesapeake Bay and traced with saddened heart 
and tearful eye the countless number of sails moving off to the mighty ocean. The sight of these always affected me powerfully. My thoughts would compel utterance, and there with no audience but the Almighty, I would pour out my soul's complaint in my own rude way with an apostrophe to the moving multitude of ships. You are loosed from your moorings. You are free. I am fast in my chains and am a slave. You move merrily before the gentle gale and I sadly before the bloody whip. You are freedom's swift-winged angels that fly around the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free! Oh, that I were on one of your gallant decks under your protecting wing. Alas, betwixt me and you the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on! Oh, that I could also go. Could I but fly? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell. Oh, God, save me. Deliver me. Is there any God? I will run away. Get caught or get clear. I must try. I have only one life to live. I had as well be killed running as to die standing only 100 miles straight north. And I am free. When we come back, Frederick Douglass takes his freedom and the Independence Day speech delivered 5th of July, 1852, or today. Today on The Janice Adams Show, we're following the trail of history to the intersection of current events. Frederick Douglass is our guide. In the third week of September, 1838, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. How I did so, what means I adopted, what direction I traveled, and by what mode of conveyance I must leave, unexplained, I must state here that, honestly, I have never approved of the very public manner in which some of our Western friends have conducted what they call the Underground Railroad. I honor those good men and women for their noble daring and applaud them for willingly subjecting themselves to bloody persecution by openly avowing their participation in the escape of slaves. I, however, saw very little good resulting from such a course for myself, either to themselves or to the slaves escaping. While, upon the other hand, I saw and felt assured that those open declarations were a positive evil to the slaves remaining. They did nothing towards enlightening the slave. They did do much toward enlightening the masters. They stimulated him to greater watchfulness and enhanced his power to capture slaves. We owe something to the slaves south of the line as well as to those north of it in aiding the latter on their way to freedom. We should be careful to do nothing which would be likely to hinder the former from escaping. I say keep the merciless slaveholder profoundly ignorant of the means of flight adopted by the slave. Leave him to imagine himself surrounded by myriads of invisible tormentors, ever ready to snatch from his infernal grasp his trembling prey. Let him be left to feel his way in the dark. Let him feel that at every step he takes in pursuit of the flying bondman, he is running the frightful risk of having his hot brains dashed out by an invisible agency. Let us render the tyrant no aid. Let us not hold the light by which he can trace the footprints of our fleeting brother. Allow me to say in conclusion 
that notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented on the state of this nation, the state of slavery in these United States, I do not despair. There are forces in operation which will inevitably work toward the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. God speed this year of jubilee, when from their galling chains set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee, and no more wear the yoke of tyranny. God speed the hour when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor in a tyrant's presence cower, but all to mankind's stature tower. Until that year, day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the jive, the spoiler of his prey deprive. And never from my chosen post shall I be driven, so witness heaven. Sincerely and earnestly hoping that this narrative may do something toward throwing light on the American slave system and hasten the glad day of deliverance to the millions of my brethren in bonds, faithfully relying upon the power of truth, love, justice, for success in my humble efforts, solemnly pledging anew to this sacred cause, I subscribe myself, Frederick Augustus Douglas, here in Lynn, Massachusetts, this 28th day of April, 1845. I thank you. Frederick Douglass recounting the narrative of his life from slavery to freedom. The year is 1852. Now living in Rochester, New York, publisher of a successful anti-slavery newspaper, he has been invited to take to the coveted stage of Corinthian Hall, a state-of-the-art platform of 19th century prosperity. He refuses the date, Independence Day, July 4th, but not the opportunity, opting instead to deliver what will remain, nearly 175 years later, his most famous speech, his 5th of July address. Mr. President, friends and fellow citizens, the papers and placards say that I'm to deliver a 4th of July oration. This certainly sounds large and out of the common way, for it is true that I have often had the privilege to speak in this beautiful hall and to address many who now honor me with their presence, but neither familiar faces nor the perfect gauge I think I have of this hall seems to free me from embarrassment. I know that apologies of this sort are generally considered flat and unmeaning. I trust, however, that mine will not be so considered. Uh, yesterday was uh, July 4th, the birthday of your national independence. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance, to the signs and wonders associated with that day. This celebration also marks the beginning of another year of your national life and reminds you that the Republic of America is now 76 years old. <laughs> 76 is but a mere speck in the life of a nation. According to this fact, however, you are now still lingering in the period of childhood. There is hope in this thought, and hope is much needed under the dark clouds which lower above the horizon. Were your nation older, the patriot's heart might be sadder, its future might be shrouded in gloom, and the hope of its prophets gone out in sorrow. Great streams may sometimes rise in quiet and stately majesty and inundate the land, refreshing and fertilizing the earth with their mysterious properties. 
They may also rise in wrath and fury and bear away on their angry waves the accumulated wealth of years of toil and hardship. But while the river may not be turned aside, it may dry up and leave nothing behind but the withered branch to howl the sad tale of departed glory. As with rivers, so with nations. Now, therefore, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of that political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? <laughs> Am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence? What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the enactment of laws for their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia which, if committed by a black man, subject him to the punishment of death, while only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, then I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs, the foul, fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, the fish of the sea, and the reptiles that crawl the ground shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then will I argue with you that the slave is a man. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine, that God did not establish it? There is blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? I, I cannot. The time for such argument is past. So I ask you again, why am I here today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year that gross injustice and that cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At this time, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could I reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we've been winding a path through history to the intersection of current events with our special guest, Oliver King, bringing us the words evoking the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass. Our special thanks to him and to the State University of New York's Sullivan County Community College 
For more about today's show, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, thanks for joining us today. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Kissing the dogs I hate the human love of that stupid